welcome to the City's Playground podcast by Leadership Foundations. My name is Noah Basket, uh, and I am here with Dave Hillis, President Emeritus of Leadership Foundations. Dave, good to see you. Great to be with you, Noah. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, been a bit since we've had our podcast. So I'm looking forward to this one. And we have, of course, a great, great guest that we will be introducing our listeners to. Yep, yep. And um, it has been a little while. We, uh, I think our last podcast session was uh, back when it was rainy still in Northwest. And we're here at the tail end of summer. And uh, you, by the way, have uh, have been on a sabbatical for a good chunk of this time, and as I understand it, you're gonna you're kind of on the tail end of that as well. Yeah, the uh, the LF board. When I did decide to step down as uh, president here, uh, the board very graciously gave me a six month sabbatical starting on uh, April 10th. Uh, for those that pay attention to the liturgical year, that was the beginning of Holy Week. And it will end here October 10th. And uh, they've asked me during this, what Larry Lloyd, who is our new president, likes to call working sabbatical, uh, to think about um, what and how LF might engage just a number of partners around the world that we have now developed over the last 14, 15 years uh, with regard to thought leadership and what spiritual and social renewal look like in the city. So it's been a very fruitful sabbatical, and uh, I've learned a lot in some ways about the theme, of course, that we're talking about in this podcast, Contemplatives in Action. Well, that's good. Yep. I know that there's been uh, a lot of voices that you, Jonathan, others have uh, been able to tap into through the project, and I think we're going to hear from some of those voices at some point in the future, uh, and so that's really exciting, and um, it sounds like there's just been so much real good stuff that's come out of those conversations. Well, um, we are uh, still amidst this uh, year in the podcast, The Life of LF, talking uh, through this book um, called Contemplatives in Action, uh, The Jesuit Way, and uh, some of the different kind of tensions that the book lifts up and kind of how they, they manifest themselves in the life of leadership foundations. And maybe even just to step back a little bit, Dave, um, Remind us why why even have this conversation around tensions as we think about the work of leadership foundations? Why is that word maybe so important? Yeah, no, to take maybe even a, another half step back, I think one of the riches of the church writ large um, is that there are a number of spiritualities that have been curated over the couple millennia um, that I think oftentimes we forget and I think this is one of the great graces of the church is that depending a little bit on your personality, a little bit on your kind of orientation, there's a, there's a number of different spiritualities that in effect you are encouraged to say, try one on and see if it fits. So you have something like, you know, the Benedictines and their work and prayer uh, that began by Benedict back in the sixth century. You've got something like the Franciscans uh, that are thinking in a particular kind of way. You've got, of course, the evangelical uh, kind of tradition and things like quiet times and worship. So it's uh, that's one of the things I want to remind our listeners all the time is that there is a rich, rich history of spiritualities out there and don't fall prey to this idea of one size fits all. I think that question is also true for organizations. 
Um, and so one of the things that I was trying to figure out as president of LF is that we have a particular charism, right, of seeing the city as a playground rather than a battleground. And that what we understand the operating mechanism in that to be is for the spiritual and social renewal of cities. So from LF's inception, we were built around attention. Um, we did not think that the city was going to be healed uh, just spiritually. Uh, we loved the prayer groups and the Bible studies and the discipleship programs. Um, and certainly we participate in those where need be, but without having some kind of social relevance, uh, we think it's a bit short-sighted. The flip side is that we're not just a social organization, right? We love mentoring programs and health clinics and you know building of houses, but if there is not some spiritual reality to that, again, we think it pulls up short. So Elif has always lived in that space from, from its inception. And again, you've heard me say this many times, no, and most of the Elif network has, that it really comes out of this G.K. Chesterton idea that the radicalness of Christ was that Christ lived in the extreme middle. Uh, and I think extreme middle at many, many levels. Um, extreme middle in the sense of just political ideology. I think the extreme middle with regard to social issues. And I think extreme middle with regard to spirituality itself. So in that context, I began to kind of look around. What would be a spirituality that would uphold that charism, that, that gift that Elif has? And I'm sure there are others, and this isn't to kind of be prescriptive, but I don't think there's any spirituality quite like Ignatian spirituality that lives out of attention uh, more honestly, and in fact, at some level welcomes it. If there isn't attention, I think the Jesuits would probably, you know, keep it a bit at arm's length. So that was really it. It was almost a bit utilitarian, right? Is is there a spirituality out there that will inhabit, embody uh, this tension that I think leadership foundations live with? You know, the last little thing I would just say on that, Noah, is I think there's scriptural account for it as well. Um, I I think you would be hard pressed to watch Christ walk through the Gospels and not see that at play. Um, I mean, just this hyperactive life at some level, right? I mean, the crowds, the healings, the you know conversations with the Pharisees. And then very subtly, uh, the Gospel writers will say, and then Jesus went away to be by himself, right? Or he, when he talks about prayer itself, he talks about this idea of going into effectively the, the pantry, um, and closing the doors and the windows, um, which in effect means, you know, be alone, be silent. So um, I think Ignatius would acknowledge that, that, that the idea of, you know, contemplatives and action is just simply what he saw at play in the Gospels. That's good. Yep. That's a, that's a great uh, frame of why this one is so important and how we're not just pulling it out of our butts here, right? This is actually kind of knee deep in the Gospel. Well, we do uh, have a guest here to talk through this kind of tension and specifically, yeah, this idea of what it means to be a contemplative in action, uh, to live into this tension between prayer and actually being active in the world. Uh, a guy by the name of Dan Cardinelli, who I know you've gotten to know pretty well, Dave, right? So maybe just say a couple uh, words about who this guy is. Yeah, I mean, so of course, 
any guests that we have, I think I want to give a very robust uh, introduction to and for, uh, otherwise we wouldn't have him as a, as a guest. Having said that, uh, I do have, though, a particular level of energy for this guest. Um, over the last now three and a half years, uh, Dan Cardinelli and I have had a chance to forge, gosh, it's even longer than three and a half years, forge a, a kind of partnership and friendship that, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, no, I mean, it's certainly changed my life. Um, Dan has been, and will be stepping down here in just, I think, the next month or so, but has been the president of Independent Sector that happens to be a partner of Leadership Foundations. Uh, it was actually through Dan's invitation uh, that Elif come on as a kind of faith thought um, partner of Independent Sector. Independent Sector, for those that don't know, is probably the largest nonprofit um, consulting group uh, in the country, representing over uh, 1.5 million uh, nonprofits. A lot of the nonprofit um, advocacy that we get in Washington, D.C., with the federal government and local state governments probably has largely to do with independent sector's work. So pretty, pretty extraordinary group. And Dan has headed that group up. Prior to that, uh, Dan was the president of Communities and Schools. And this is actually where Dan and I uh, begin to bump into each other because, of course, we both had uh, the uh, <laughs> both wonderful grace and and burden of following two urban you know myths in Bill Carpenter with communities and schools and Reed Carpenter uh, with with leadership foundations. So we kind of cried you know on each other's shoulders a bit. I mean, how do you how do you faithfully um, follow up to to men like that um and so he's uh again been a wise counsel to me a great friend uh, we are in a virtual kind of support group uh together um along with another good friend james allison so at probably every level of my life um you can see a fingerprint of uh, of dan cardinelli the other particular thing though that's interesting about this conversation with dan is prior to becoming president of communities and schools and then president of independent sector, uh, he actually studied to be a Jesuit for almost seven years. The uh, formation process in the Jesuits is 13 years. So, you know, Dan was, was well into this almost halfway point uh, when he sensed and discerned that God was calling him in a different way. As such, though, he is fluent uh, in all things Jesuit and certainly, you know, this idea of uh, contemplatives in action. Well, that's great. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's, without any ado, kind of dive in here and um, listen to uh, that conversation you were able to have uh, with Dan. So, uh, yeah, let's take, take a listen. Wonderful. Great. Um, well, uh, first of all, thank you. It's really a delight to be with you all. Um, so I'm Dan Cardinali. I'm currently uh, the outgoing CEO of the Independent Sector, which is a membership organization of which Leadership Foundations has joined in the last few years and really made a significant contribution in a number of ways. Um, this podcast being another example of how you bring to civil society a, a sense of how faith and religion are a dynamic part of the American context and often overlooked. Um, 
And before that, I was uh, had the privilege of being at the National Office of Communities and Schools, working closely with one of uh, someone on the board, of course, Bill Millikan, who founded Communities and Schools. Spent uh, 17 years there. And then prior to that, I, uh, in terms of my adult career, the most formative piece was really spending eight years as a Jesuit in formation, um, where I had the opportunity to be invited into a formation process that allowed me to deepen a spirituality in the Ignatian tradition, while also um, being deeply grounded in the world and the kind of incarnational nature of how the Holy Spirit works to be a force for transformation for human and and environmental flourishing. So that's a little bit about me. Um, what drew me to the Jesuit? Dan, and maybe real quick for a lot of our listeners who would not be familiar with the Jesuit tradition say a bit about the whole formation process so we said eight years i'm sure there were some going how long eight years and yet that fits into a larger context yeah. articulate that. so i can kind of blend maybe the second or the first question you asked me around why so um when i was a young man um i was sent to a jesuit uh kind of middle school high school and um, what I observed in my life was that many of the Jesuits, not all, but many that I met, um, exhibited a kind of joy and freedom in moving in the world. They could be with the, you know, kind of movers and shakers of this private high school. While at the same time, when we went to um, do community service in downtown urban environments, they seemed equally as free and joyful and present. And that, um, while I wasn't, you know, as clear as I am now, I felt a deep attraction to that kind of freedom of movement in the world. Um, and so over a lot of experiences, which I can talk more about if that's of interest, the Jesuits keep be, be increasingly as a layperson um, through high school and college was this anchor where I kept going back to making sense of the experiences I was having in the world. And I found it um, enormously life-giving. It, it made me happy and felt like I could accept myself as I was unfolding. But it also seemed to have real relevance in making a difference in the world. I could see the independent of my own experience. There was good things happening in and around uh, the work I got to do with them. So I then joined the Jesuits. And the Jesuits are a 450-year-old Catholic order of priests and brothers founded um, really in uh, the beginning part of the 1500s, in part in response to the Reformation that was going on. Um, and they, uh, like all the orders, the Dominicans or the Franciscans or the Carthusians, have a kind of personality or charism as a gift to the church. And the Jesuits um, bring this notion of contemplation and action. Um, which I know is the topic of today, as a, a core gift, a charism, where you are both academically um, kind of prepared and rigorously trained, and yet the posture is finding God's spirit alive in a work in the world. Um, and so you bring kind of the best thinking that you can, but it is the experience of interacting with the world and the reflection on that that provides a kind of openness to then possibilities. And that was the freedom that I had experienced with so many of the Jesuits that I met as a young person. And so th that attraction to the way of proceeding, the spirituality, was what kept me really um, 
very much engaged. And the Jesuits have this wonderful um, process to sort of become ordained as a priest. It's about an 11 year process. Um, and then to become, yeah, that's a lot. And then for final vows, it could be anywhere from three to 10 or 15 years after that. And mm. the notion is you're just unfolding in God's spirit. And what the formation process does is there are very discrete phases um, that work on maybe a particular dimension. So the first part of it is a two-year kind of spirituality boot camp where you're a novice and you really, it is about being a contemplative in action and learning the tools and uh, making them your own. You then take final vows and then you're sent to a period of study. In my case, that was getting a master's in philosophy. Um, while you're also doing work in the summers, I was sent to Mexico to work in squatter communities. Hmm. And then once you graduate uh, philosophy, you're sent on to a period of work called regency. And sometimes that's uh, sent to a Jesuit institution, like a high school or a college or a multi-service organization. And other times it's sent to um, a retreat facility or someplace that works kind of with the idea that it grows and stretches the emerging gifts of your Jesuit identity. So I was sent to Mexico, back to Mexico, where I spent time doing two things at the same time, learning to be in squatter communities uh, as an organizer, while also studying social analysis, the, the, the technique of social change and how do you grow and sustain and, and allow it to unfold. And then I came back to the States and uh, before I was sent to theology, um, the Jesuits had this process. In each one of those phases, they stop you and say, are you still being called to continue in Jesuit religious life or has your vocation shifted to a different configuration? And as I came back from Mexico, I began to feel like there was a, a shift in me, my uh, my vocation. And so I was then sent to Georgetown for a fellowship around theological reflection and um, how it impacted the world. During that time, it was a wonderful period where I felt very much called into lay life and no longer a formal religious. So uh, as a 30, 31-year-old, I kind of emerged into the world of lay life after having been with the Jesuits in one way, shape, or form since I was 13. So it was a, it was a long period of uh, my life. Yeah. I just had Jonathan's heard this story a thousand times, uh, Dan. And again, I think our listeners will appreciate this. I had done some theological work on the Leadership Foundations uh, right prior to becoming the president to replace, of course, Reed Carpenter. And part of my argument with my own Jesuit kind of sensibilities is that I talked about the particular charism that I felt like was given to Sam Shoemaker and then to Reed Carpenter and then to the rest of us. And it is this idea of seeing the city as uh, God's playground rather than a battleground. So in my interview with the board, I was, of course, articulating this. I felt like it was going well. And uh, then at some point, I said to them, however, I said, "Where it takes you, I think, seven years to become a Benedictine and 13 years to become a, a Jesuit. As best as I can tell under Reed Carpenter, if you like good scotch and good cigars, you can become a leadership foundation about half a night. And the board did what I've described as a chortle, which was like half gasp and half laugh. And I said, uh, if you hire me, uh, my task is going to be somehow to hold on to that wonderful, innovative spirit, but begin to overlay it with a kind of rigor uh, and discipline. And so all that to say, uh, the Jesuits 
Uh, as much as I love their spirituality, what I have been completely intrigued with is their organization structure and have really uh, adapted and adopted large parts of the way the Jesuits have gone about organizing themselves because it's been such a good organizational fit for leadership foundations moving forward. So um, I, I really appreciate your uh, kind of reflection on all of that. It, uh, it's, it's wonderful. You know, you, you brought it up about this notion that kind of contemplatives and action um, is sort of baked into uh, the spirituality of the Jesuits. I think it was, I have this right, that, that Ignatius used to talk about the Ignatian or uh, a you know Jesuit as someone who always had one foot in the air, right? The notion that it was in motion, that they were moving on. Um, so drill into this idea of contemplatives in action and maybe take the first word, you know, contemplative and what has been your experience with that? Uh, what has come to mind as you have drilled down uh, into that whole idea and how has that fueled your life? Um, so uh, let me start by saying, you know, I offer the following reflections. Um, I hope with a spirit of open humility and that it is um, it is the best reflection I can do and it's as honest as I can be. And by no means is it exhaustive or complete yet in my own life, much less a model for anybody else. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, but I very much appreciate the question. So um, the only way I can start, and I love it is contemplative in action not action contemplative right um and so i think that there is a um a, a clue that we're given that there is something about disposing yourself to god's spirit as your primary posture and i would argue your permanent posture and i think the um, clue is given in the kind of very uh foundational um document that Ignatius put forward called the first principle and foundation, um, which I'm going to read. I'm, I'm using the literal translation. It is a bit uh, clunky for modern day sensibilities, but it is, it kind of breaks through as a result. And so the, the literal translation of the first principle and foundation is, and I quote, God created human beings to praise, reverence, and serve God. And by doing this to save their souls. God created all things on the face of the earth to help fulfill this purpose. From this follows that we are to use the things of this world only to the extent that they help us to this end. And we ought to rid ourselves of the things of this world to the extent that they get in the way of this end. For this, it is necessary to make ourselves indifferent to all created things as much as we are able to, so that we do not necessarily want health rather than sickness, riches rather than poverty, honor rather than dishonor, a long uh, life rather than a short life, and so in all the rest, so that we ultimately desire and choose only what is most conducive for us to the ends for which God created us. 
So this notion of contemplation yeah. is to hold a posture, a contemplative posture of what what I like to coin Jesuit indifference. Like being rich or being poor is um, kind of doesn't have a valence. And this can be very provocative in our world today. Um, but it is about how those can be either means to building the God's reign or they can be impediments. And it is our interaction with them and the allowing God's spirit to flow through our ability to be um, a disciple of Christ and an ability to be able to um, have the freedom to do what is right in furthering God's kingdom, as it were. So that to me is the contemplation, that there is this constant return to being present to that disposition and the excitement of then looking out into the world and seeing the just endless possibilities. So each of us has to cultivate the that posture, I believe, in our own way. And there, I don't think there's only one set of ways to do that. Um, in my own life, I've worked very hard and it's evolved and grown. Um, and I fail as I uh, try to lead off. This, this is a very hard thing to do. But so that's the contemplation part that, you know, um, yeah. and the last thing that I would love to quote, um, because I find it so exciting, um, is Romans 8.22, that, you know, all of creation is just groaning like birth pains for God's spirit to be made manifest. So we don't have to work that hard. We just have to look. Um, it's there and it is it is emergent. Um, and I just find that so exciting, that, that kind of um, engaged That's world. That's beautiful. You know, to go back to the contemplative part, Dan, and let me see if I captured this right. I mean, there is that part uh, where we are contemplating on God's goodness, God's beauty. I mean, all of what that might be. But what I also heard is you talk maybe the contemplation is about looking at some of those things around us that can either uh, help you know, move us forward or hinder us. Is that right? Did I did I capture that right? That it's both yes, you got it. exactly gaze and a vertical gaze. That's exactly right. Yes, there is a sense of being in relationship and radical relationship with God through a relationship with Jesus in my tradition and animated by the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that you pay attention to. Ignatius is really clear. You you physically should be feeling that. And you can trust that you are a created being, but then being in the world and there's, so there's a, there's a, uh, I don't want to get too technical, but there is a set of, of training or tools that are offered to, you You know, this day because of your background that then how do you then make sense of the daily kind of, as you say, horizontal existence. And there's this thing called the examine, right? Which ideally you do twice a day, but if you can't do it once, and that is just a 10, 15 minute routine where you stop yourself. I mean, you can do it on the train, you can do it in the car on the ride home, you can do it anywhere. And you just, it is this lovely, I just find it so exciting to say, where did I experience love, joy, um, the world uh, unfolding with someone flourishing or the environment being stewarded? And how did that 
how do I know that? And it's like this being from your guts, this joy, this sense of rightness that we just know and we can sense. And then you ask what happened in the world as a result of that? Um, and it can be a simple thing, like someone just, you you watched someone gives a, a colleague a compliment and that person you could see settle and be present in a meeting. Yeah. Like, oh, they're more available. It doesn't have to be, you know, massive things. And then you also ask the other question, where did I experience the the blocking of the, the all of creation, you know, groaning forward? And what role did I have in either uh facilitating or frustrating that blockage so it what it does is it just grounds you in the daily activities the vertical or the horizontal that you're talking about um and it's i have found that to be one of the most powerful prayers in my life um because it's very incarnational it's right it's in yeah, daily that's life. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, just as an aside, you know, you and I have a good friend, of course, who talks about God being this the sideways God, right? And that emphasizes and places accent on that uh, that horizontal, to be sure. Um, one of the things that I have found intriguing about uh, Ignatius uh, is really his pretty radical commitment to the role of imagination um, in one's prayer life. And I, I would... I would love to hear you maybe reflect a bit on that. Uh, my sense of it, Dan, is that Ignatius is sort of inviting us to inhabit uh, the stories, for example, in the scripture to read about Jesus at the wedding, you know, changing water to wine and becoming one of those characters. Uh, how has that contributed to your own sense of contemplation and um yeah. yeah, so it's a great question. I'm a little bit uh, unorthodox on this one. Um, so let me go to the the standard, and then I'll answer your question. So I think you summed it up beautifully. Uh, the Jesuit contemplation, Ignatian contemplation, is about the the belief in many regards that we inhabit the gospel as it's unfolding in life, and part of doing that is getting back to the stories that are so vivid in the, in the um, uh, in the Gospels, and then entering them and trusting the Holy Spirit to help fill out the details: the smell of the hay in the manger, the sweat on um, the brow of the beggars, you know, the glee of the lepers being healed, and to um, enter into the humanity of how Christ worked. And in doing so, you experience the relationship with Jesus and the community of saints in a in a radically different way. Um, and it's very, very powerful. And so the spiritual exercises, which are uh, can be done in a variety of ways. They historically were done in a 30-day silent retreat, but they've been adapted beautifully into the 19th annotation, which can be done in daily life. Um, so that is a uh, kind of a core competency to help you engage the spiritual exercises. I have found, um, because I can be overly intellectual, um, that the contemplation sometimes gets uh, sticky for me. So I have found that the um, turning in the most recent years, contemplating creation 
the walks being out in the world has um, unfolded a sense of the Holy Spirit in a way that I hadn't experienced through contemplation. So I'm just trusting that that is the gift that I need these days. So I contemplate a great deal of, uh, you know, the magnitude is, you know, we were, I was just in Western Michigan and um, I was struck. I was, I was so moved by being there and I kept figuring, trying to figure out what it was that moved me. I realized that's the trees. Like how miraculous is God's creation where this, you know, beautiful forest of trees. And so um, Ignatius is really clear, go with where you're moved and trust that the weaving will take place. Beautiful. Yeah. One of the people just in my own life that I uh, have lived with for many, many years, uh, of course, is the famous Tom, Thomas Merton. And in particular, uh, what I have loved most about Merton is his journals, um, because there's a there's a kind of courage uh, and, and vulnerability in those journals. It's amazing. But part of the reason I bring this up is that uh, Merton could not imagine being a monk apart from nature and his his love for it, his articulation of it uh, is just is just beautiful. Well, thank you for those thoughts on, on contemplation. So then let's maybe take the next step. How does that contemplation, as you've described it, begin to shape your sense of action uh, in this world, taking action in this world? So um, I, you know, toggle between a secular and uh, life as a leader um, and leading institutions and, you know, a uh, primacy of my own religious and spiritual um, habits. And so um, the I, I don't want to be duplicitous in my relationships with people. So I've had to struggle to find language that has secular credibility but allows me to still proceed with this reflective examine of finding God's spirit moving in the world. And the, where I found the language to be really uh, helpful in terms of common ground is asking questions around um, human flourishing, that um, it goes to the, the point that I made around the principle and foundation that we're intended to be a fully human and in relationship with God and alive in the world and that the world is in service to uh, God's um, support of our environment and our individual and collective flourishing. That has been given me an opportunity to then, in the work I did at communities and schools and in the work at independent sector, to ask the critical question, how is our work supporting individual and collective flourishing? Um, and that has given me then the tools to be able to reflect transparently without always having to be completely open about what the terms were or how I was drawing on it. So that's one dimension about the um, uh, kind of the action part of it. The second is, uh, and this goes to my point about creation, as I've spent the last 20 years really enjoying um, being feeling God's presence in creation. It's so clear to me that creation is just developmental, right? Um, it just is. Trees have 
acorns that drop in the ground, some die, some sprout. Those that sprout are little and um, can be eaten by deer. Others can eventually break through, but it takes time. And I've approached action with a similar uh, increased over, as I've gotten older, patience. Like not everything works. Um, pay attention to what is. I can only control so much. There are forces in creation that are larger than myself. And pay attention to what where flourishing takes place and then determine if it will bear fruits in ways that allow for others to flourish individually and collectively. So that has been a big piece of how I've approached it. And then the final thing, again, as a Catholic, um, but I think this is a certainly a um a treasure trove for for any Christians. And um so Catholic social teaching is such a really developed body of work um, mm -hmm. that you don't have to follow, you know, chapter and verse to still really feel the spirit of it. And um, there are a number of, of dimensions of that, two that I'll share with today that I find helpful in anchoring human flourishing in such a highly individual culture that we live in. So the one would certainly be subsidiarity, the notion that those who live closest to the action have the primacy of the responsibility of the response to whatever opportunity or challenge may present itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, it carries a moral and a spiritual weight to it. Um, and you think about human flourishing, that each of us are in charge of our own lives to help it unfold and flourish. And then the second um, notion is this notion of solidarity, that we are radically in relationship with each other, inextricably so. And our own flourishing really is linked to the flourishing of others. So you can't absolutize what's good for you as an, an absence of what might good, be good for you and the community around you, and I would argue the, the natural environment. So this holding of kind of um, the, the language that often is used is rights and obligations. I have rights to my own flourishing and I have obligations to support the flourishing of the environment and my community around me. So those have been ways in which I've been able yeah. to navigate action. I love it. I think that that makes such, such great sense. You know, to maybe go to the other side now in all of this work that you've done around, you know, again, being contemplative and trying to move that to action what have you found has been maybe some of the obstacles that have, you know, you have run into over the years and how have you gotten through them, you know, maybe seen them redeemed? Um, speak, speak to us a bit about that, because this is not an easy process, as you've already indicated. Yeah. Um, so I'll go from the inside out. So inside, um, you know, as a middle aged man. Uh, living in the, the crossover between the 20th and the 21st century, you know, the pressure to be successful, whatever that means, it doesn't mean just the acquisition of wealth or power, but making a contribution and doing that in a way that is um, shaped by the cultural values, many of which are secular, uh, has been a real struggle in, you know, the going to this first principle that, I mean, uh, not wanting power versus wanting power. And you allude, you know, you can delude yourself that with power, you will do good things. Um, 
maybe, maybe not. Um, So the struggle to retain this indifference or this freedom to look to myself and to the options um, has been really hard. Um, And again, with no false humility, or maybe with a little false humility, this notion of failing miserably most of the time, it's really just the pressures and um, from my own family and from the world around me. Um, so that would be a big thing. Um, and then what's embedded in that is your use of time, the seemingly unproductive work of contemplation vis-a-vis the demands of staying up a little bit late, or in my case, getting up super early and writing a memo or preparing for whatever it might be. And it, it chips away and chips away all in service of what seems to be good. But if you're missing the the reflective piece of it, it can go awry really fast. And it has in my own life. So that would be the biggest challenge that we live in a, in a world where activity is seen as a high value and is seen as related to productivity. And we just value that as a, as a culture very, very highly. Um, that would be uh, one big thing. Then uh, I would add two other dimensions that I think are related to the city part. You know, we live in um, a uh, incredibly diverse uh, world, increasingly so. And urban environments, I would say, are really the tip of the spear of where that diversity is experienced most profoundly. Um, And so there are forces um, that in some ways manifest this way, that uh, to assert to live out of your values could be seen as being evangelical against somebody else's values or proselytizing. And so there's a sensitivity to respecting other people's um, space, which I think is a value that I hold, while at the same time providing myself the freedom to be able to live authentically out of what I believe, not in service of trying to convert anybody, but in a service of trying to be transparent about what actually motivates me in my life. And then the vulnerability when you do that, that comes with that. As a, mm-hmm. as a public figure at an independent sector, introducing you know, faith institutions, and Dave, you and I have had uh, long conversations, and the gift of the Leadership Foundation coming into our membership has been profound. Um, but it was met with enormous resistance and suspicion. So people that are religious and in the secular world we, we live in are seen as weak thinkers, um, not strategic, undisciplined, um, and the list goes on and on. So that has been a struggle. Like when you're a public person and you want to be authentic and yet you know that people are going to look at you as if you're you know, stupid or not taken seriously. It's just hard. Um, (laughs) And then the final thing I'll say is this, that um, this may be the most provocative thing perhaps I'm going to say. We live still in a deeply religious world. We live in a hyper-polarized world where your position on the right or the left is becoming uh a uh a force that is approaching religious affiliation what i mean by that that there is um 
on the right and the left, a sense that belonging to that community is identity forming and serves as a lens through which you interpret reality. And it is, it is a secular force of enormous magnitude. And so um, for any set of institutions, religious, navigating through the kind of uh, centrifugal forces of polarization and the demands of, in a sense, tribal conformity can be a deeply lonely and extremely challenging environment. So um, this is different than the normal, we live in a secular world. It is identifying uh, increasingly uh, powerful identity forces that are supplanting the ability to be contemplative in a religious context and not contemplative in a conformity to whatever the political mm. uh, framework in which you find yourself in. Yeah. <laughs> That is that's so well said, and it it's almost in some ways the gravity of what you described probably demands more than ever this need for being contemplatives in action, right? Because there's Agreed. just yeah. yeah so much going on. What have you found have been sources of support for you in this kind of lonely venture at times? Um, and here I'm thinking about you know maybe is it there been the element of community around you, Dan, that you've nurtured and curated that maybe doesn't fully understand what you're all about, but at least has some appreciation. I mean, how important is that? I think and I'm thinking about our listeners here in terms of them trying to develop the resources to be these contemplatives in action. Yeah. Um, so a couple things on this. First, let me tell a story. Um, and then um, I'll, get at a more kind of um, analytic response. I had this very powerful experience when uh, I transitioned from the Jesuits. I had a, a short stint running an international leadership training program between Latin America and the United States, and then had the gift of finding communities and schools. And as you well know, the kind of the uh, tap roots, the, the core roots of CIS and leadership foundations can draw on a really um, core commonality. Absolutely. And that, right. And that's materially important in this conversation because even though Bill Milliken, I think, uh, could see the reason, which was very smart if we were going to work in public education, to present the organization in a more secular framework, its roots, and he worked really hard personally to keep this alive as a coming out of a faith based institution. So let me tell a story on this. So I, when I was recruited into communities and schools, I had been offered and already accepted a job running the Latin American division of Lutheran World Relief. Wow. And I was so intrigued by the design of communities and schools. I took the meeting and I met with Bill and he put his feet on the desk and, you know, kind of did what he does. And then said to me, so um, he said, I, I understand that you have another job offer. Um, what's the job? And I said, it's working at Lutheran World Relief. And he said, well, um, what's the, what's attractive about it? Uh, I said, well, it's a faith-based institution. So it would be a place from which I could be more um, more clear about how I would proceed. And he said, oh, we're a faith-based institution. And, I, and so anybody that knows Bill knows that, you know, he could sell snow to an Eskimo. Um, so in part, you're like, 
is this really true? And then, um, but in this case, it really was. I can attest to my 17 years of journeying with Bill Milliken. This was something that was still very important to him. So the reason I bring this up is that when I transitioned to independent sector, I took for granted that context as a nurturing environment where I could actually effectively translate between the secular and the religious. When I got to independent sector, it was a radically and aggressive secular environment that I would argue is pretty anti-religious. And that's when I found myself in a, a whole lot of crisis. So I'm very fortunate. I belong to a Jesuit church and they have, uh, I would say, a world-class Ignatian spirituality program led by mostly lay women who have done a phenomenal job. And it was in short order that I found myself connected to that community that became this very important sustaining group while I was in. So I, I needed to find a truly a reflective religious community that shared not just what became really real for me was that not just spirituality broadly defined, but one that linked with the roots that I had been trained in and I could live out of those. So it's been an enormous resource and it would have been impossible for me to sustain the work um, had I not had that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the counterintuitive parts of being a contemplative in action because your first glance at it is it's, you know, some solitary figure right out on the hill communing with yeah. God. But the truth is, is that it has to be done if it's sustainable in community and to find that community that understands that is, is absolutely right. I'd love for you maybe to comment too on the role of spiritual direction uh, in your life and has that played a role and I'm thinking about again you know women and men that probably have you've looked up to or admired that have been able to speak into your life and say a bit about that sure so um the spiritual direction as probably most of you listeners know it is the uh, discipline um of bringing into your life someone who um is trained to accompany you in your experience of God's spirit in your life and in the Ignatian tradition, I can't speak for others, but in the Ignatian tradition, one of the centerpieces of that is the accompaniment around helping you discern how God is working through your life so you can do what the principle and foundation says, more freely partner with how God is working with and around and in you to be a source of healing and reconciliation in the kingdom of God. So... Um, that's how I think about spiritual direction. And in my own life, from an early age, and again, I, uh, um, I just was like a 13, 14 year old, I was just exposed to this. So it was a part of my life, uh, well into my late 30s. There's probably a hiatus for a period of probably five or six years in my 40s. And then it got reignited. Um, and so I've always had a spiritual director, and I was also trained as a spiritual director. Um, what I love about it um, is that in the very technical rules that Ignatius talks about, the being accountable to another human being where there's trust and being able to say what's really going on and with the confidence that the, the director has only your best interest and God's best interest in mind, they can name things or blind spots or help you uh, water a shoot that's coming up that you might not be paying attention to. So I think it is 
one of the most important resources where, to your point, there's community um, and a kind of trusted relationship um, and the shared agreed goal that God being unfolded in the world is what they're, you're both about. And as a director, you're sharing your gifts of direction. As a directee, you're opening your life up to another human being who is similarly, you know, uh, prayerfully bringing your life and the way God's working it to their own prayer and sharing the reflections of that. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I know we're right up against our, our time here. Uh, Dan, part of the way we'd love to maybe conclude this in this world that we're living in that has some sharp edges, to be sure, what is currently giving you or bringing you hope these days as you look around and uh, try to see what the Holy Spirit is up to? Um, there are a couple of things uh, that I would say first, um, the, um, what I'm observing, let me start with the very concrete. So personally, um, as you know, uh, like yourself, I'm stepping into a sabbatical and the hope that I have is there is a community and you've helped really, uh, midwife this to me in many regards in connecting me with James Allison and an opportunity to, um, rigorously reinterrogate my the way I I, um, I discern the action part of being a contemplative in action that's really the uh, to me that Excellent. I hadn't thought of it that way but that is a and that, that there was, are oh, beautifully said right there by the way just as as a friend and watching the Holy Spirit in your life that you captured something there so Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, um, you've been, you know, there's been a community of people like you. Um, and, you know, we did this retreat back in um, May. Um, my parish, um, which is a very high powered parish in Washington, D.C., where people like Senator or President Biden actually go to church, mm. is a engine of spirituality and discernment in a way that now has caught the attention of the larger Jesuit provinces and the larger Catholic church. And what's so encouraging to me is the real engine are lay women leading, owning this charism and making it their own and bringing yeah. the range of their life. So yeah. just, it's like renewal for, uh, you know, Protestants have gotten this a long time ago where women can take on, um, you know, equal bona fide leadership roles. We Catholics are well behind. And this is just a, it's been a great joy watching this unfold and seeing the, the, the power of it. And then as I turn to the, uh, the larger world, um, I'm going to share again something I think that just po possibly controversial. Um, uh, how do I frame this? Um, we are living through a moment of enormous disruption in the world and certainly we're experiencing it in the united states um and i would for the u.s i would say there are three you know real powerful disruptors the first would be um around climate it's a global crisis and it's irrefutable that there is a dramatic effect that's having across our country so that that uh, you know raises an existential set of questions for everybody who am I? Who am I in community? Who am I in relationship with the world? And what am I doing about that problem? The second I would say would be um, a, it's global, but it's particularly in the US, 
a, a racial reckoning, a, a, an opening up of people's awareness of our history and a reworking quite uncomfortably of how we think about the systems that have perpetuated racism in many regards um, and how we, what's our relationship with doing something about that and the struggles, the really profound struggles that that brings. And then the third would be our democracy, that the institutions that have, and I think democracy and Christianity um, are deeply complementary um, for a variety of reasons, which we could talk about another time. So I think, I am excited that uh, organizations like leadership foundations or religious institutions are now stepping forward with real wisdom to bring to bear, to wrestle down these three big disruptors. And I think it's a great, great opportunity. Um, and I see real signs of hope in that area, not without its struggles, but I really, you know, um, I think the degree to which the existential questions are being asked by individuals, local communities, and the national community, really the religious traditions have ancient wisdom that have wrestled these down for millennia. And they will be enormous resources to help us navigate what is, you know, an, a very adaptive work. We have to invent our way forward. delightful. Uh, I know Jonathan and all of our listeners will walk away feeling both encouraged, I think sobered to be sure, and uh, and really have a path forward uh, that will give us hope. So thank you, my friend. Wow. Well, Dave, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. What a, uh, what a deep soul at play. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I think one of the things that maybe I want to highlight that Dan said um, that I think we again can pick up, what was his comment about that the sequencing of the words is important. You know, we're not activists who do contemplation. Uh, we are contemplatives first that then move to action. Um, and I think for our listeners within the LF Network, uh, that's a really critical thing to have in your back pocket. I mean, one of our theological ideas is that the Holy Spirit, of course, is already very much alive in their respective city. Um, and it is our job to discern uh, where the Spirit is working. Well, that's just simply another way to describe, you know, being contemplative, right? Pause, look around, um, ask good questions, um, talk to people. All of that uh, makes up this idea of contemplation, and it's only on the heels of contemplation that you can begin, I think, to get a bit of a sense of you know which direction to go. And I thought Dan, you know, beautifully um, articulated that, and it's part of the reason why he's such an important part of the LF work moving forward. Totally, yeah. There was a, I think, I caught wind of this early on in your guys's conversation. I might not have gotten this exactly right, but. Dan described how, you know, disposing yourself to God's spirit, which is what you're talking about, really is your primary posture, but not but just that, but a, a permanent posture, right? So somehow getting into that place. You know, the other thing too, um, I think this is a gift to the Jesuits, and Dad made this real, is there is something about that word contemplation that feels just a little like, oh God, I don't, <laughs> that's over my pay grade, or that means... Uh, 
getting into a particular posture and uh, putting my hands a particular way and being completely silent for hours on end. And there's something about, yeah, as he was describing the examine, um, the spiritual exercises, there's something very practical in this and really approachable too, right? Yeah, I mean, I <clears throat> I think you could not have said that better, uh, Noah. I mean, again, Ignatian spirituality almost pivots, and I may be very careful about this word because I don't always like it, but pivots out of this place of utilitarianism. I mean, does it work, right? What What's going to help us get from A to B? And if something helps, then use it. If something doesn't help, get rid of it. And so when it comes to being contemplative in an Ignatian context, yeah, does going off to a monastery help? Well, for some it does, right? But for others it would be like, you know, I mean, my worst nightmare. Well, then don't do it. Um, is sitting in a quiet place alone helpful? If it works, yes. If it doesn't, don't. Um, crossing your hands, you know, standing up, taking walks in nature. I mean, all of that uh, is at the disposal um, of somebody that's trying to figure out how to be a contemplative uh, in an Ignatian context. And I think Dan brought that up beautifully. So, yeah, for sure. Well, we are uh, really, really grateful for Dan for uh, contributing to this podcast and uh, excited for his uh, transition afoot and what's up next for him. So, uh, thanks again, Dave, for that time. We uh, oh, we also did get a chance to get a good recommendation from him too, right? Absolutely. Dan being Dan, in fact, I kind of laughingly uh, forgot to ask him that uh, when we were interviewing him. And uh, he was the one that reminded me, hey, I've given some thought to uh, a couple of recommendations. And so, uh, yeah, he has got some great ones. Great. Well, here is Dan once again on his City as Playground recommendation. I had two things. One was a book I just most recently read. Um, I'll tell you what it is uh, and why I liked it. So the book was called The Year of Our Lord, 1943. And um, the reason uh, that I thought it would be interesting relative to the challenge in front of us is it talks about the period between really the 1933 and 1943, how public intellectuals were really needed um, and came to the fore with a clarion call about they could see that we were heading towards authoritarianism, the war was unfolding, and then they realized that the world was going to be different afterwards. And they asked a set of questions, what will be the organizing um, ways in which we answer the challenges of rebuilding our world? How will we rebuild our world? So I would share that. The book is a little bit on the um, esoteric side or intellectual side. But um, I found it enormously valuable, uh, personally. And then on a much more uh, emotional side, um, a go-to, particularly in these days, is um, the poem Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. We have a friend, uh, Dave and I, who also loves this poem. But I would commend the last part of the poem to folks, and I'll read it. Um, he goes in or she goes uh, into saying, you know, until we can confront the suffering that we experience and the suffering of others, we actually don't know what kindness is. And she builds up to this. And so she says, this, this is the final stanza. You must wake up with sorrow. 
You must speak of it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. And what I love about that is this, this notion that in solidarity, when we recognize we're all suffering, we're all struggling. And if we put kindness as our response to folks suffering and our own, how transformed the world would be. Um, so I'll leave it with that. Well, thanks to you all, uh, those of you that are our regular listeners and those that tuned in just to this episode of the City is Playground uh, podcast by Leadership Foundations. Once again, thanks to Dan Cardinelli for that really thoughtful conversation on uh, being both a contemplative and an active agent in the world. Uh, we also just wanted to let you know we are taking a little bit of a break on the City's Playground podcast. Um, there is just simply lots to do throughout the LF network, and the network is growing. We have a number of new cities both in the United States that are coming on board as part of the network, as well as a number of organizations and cities throughout uh, Latin America, India, and Africa. So we are keeping ourselves busy uh, in support of that network and their work of driving real lasting social and spiritual change in the cities uh, that they serve. So uh, we will continue to stay in touch with you. Be sure to follow us on our website, leadershipfoundations.org. Uh, sign up for our newsletter there. And once again, thanks. And we'll talk to you soon.
well, recommendations, I guess I should say. Uh, so just to repeat to our listeners, if you didn't catch it, um, the first one was The Year of Our Lord, 1943, book by Alan Jacobs, and a poem that I was less familiar with, Kindness by Naomi Shehab Nye, which I am going to go check out next on my day. Yep, it was uh, it was wonderful, and I'd again highly recommend that book that uh, that Dan did to recommend. I've had a chance to grab a hold of it, and I think it can be very helpful for uh, helping people see the city as a playground. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dave. Uh, great to be with you. Great conversation. Thanks to Dan, and uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll see you next time. All right, Noah. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Dave.